Murders, Mysteries, and Conspiracies with author Glenn P. Klinger III is presented by the Florida Pickleball Clothing Company. For all your pickleball clothing, go to floridapickleballclothingcompany.com. Now, with today's murders, mysteries, and conspiracies, here is author Glenn P. Klinger III. Hey, everybody. It's Glenn, and I want to welcome you to yet another installment of Murders, Mysteries, and Conspiracies. If you are a returning listener, I want to thank you for that and giving us one more try. If you're a first-time listener, I want to tell you, if you're looking for a place where we talk about murders, mysteries, or conspiracies, and I try and give you as much information as I can, so you can go out, take my references that I provide in the description below, get your own material, get back to me. Let me know your thoughts on it. I think that everybody's opinion matters. We will never, ever cancel anybody here. If you don't believe as I believe, it doesn't matter. Everybody's got their opinion. Everybody's entitled to it. I think that's what makes this fun. And I look forward to it. I've been doing these for several months now and have really enjoyed doing it. If you are a continual listener, I want to thank you for hanging on with me. I want to thank you for tuning in each and every podcast. You can go to Spotify, iTunes, along with a lot of other venues. You can also look on YouTube. YouTube, I've got the Two Minute Mysteries and some of these full-length podcasts. So you can go there and find those there. I wanted to give you a little backstory before we get started on this topic. Today, we're talking about uh, Murder Incorporated. i touch on that. We're going to talk about cartels, large criminal organizations, and how human trafficking is impacted by cartels. To give you a little backstory, I usually don't talk about the books that I've written too much, besides just mentioning them, but Rolling Justice case four, I decided I wanted to do something on human trafficking. I did a cursory investigation and then I wrote the book. It takes a little time to write a 400 page book, but I went ahead and finished the book and called my editor. And one of my editors who lives here locally, his name is Ross Estep. Now Ross is a great guy. He is a really good editor. He edited Rolling Justice 1, 2, and 3. And so when I finished the fourth one, I just called him and said, hey, let's sit down and talk about it. I gave him the book about a week before, and he came in to the little coffee shop over there in Greenville, and he sat down with me and had his notes. When you're looking for editors, it's funny because you have editors that can just edit sentence structure in your periods, commas, grammatical stuff. But when you can find somebody that can read knows your characters knows your story and what you're trying to get across and understands how you write that's priceless and ross provides that he's the type of guy that he can do that that's rare and it's exceptional when i met with him after i'd given him the book he kind of looked at me and normally he's straight up i'd rather have somebody you have to learn if you're a writer to take constructive criticism you're going to have people that don't like how you write You're going to have people that don't like what you write and that's okay. Everybody can't like what everybody does. Ross looked at me and he said, where are you trying to go with this? And he kind of caught me off guard and said, well, I'm trying to relate a story about human trafficking. And he really summed it up. He said, well, if you're going to make it bad, then make it really bad. Make it realistic. Let people know what's really going on. I left that meeting and I sat down thinking, 
now I got to rewrite this 400 page book. Cause when you start like that, it, it not only changes the story, it changes the structure of the story. I knew that I had to really change, start from the beginning and totally rewrite it. And I valued his opinion and I knew that he was right. I knew deep down, okay, he's right. I got to make this worse. So I thought I'm going to educate myself. I decided to go to a human trafficking symposium that they hold every year in green. It was 2019 or something like that. So I watched it and I was shocked at the level of human trafficking in this country. I thought it was a small problem, not really that bad, just sporadic in bigger cities. I'm here to tell you it's everywhere. It is everywhere. According to these FBI agents and these folks that did the symposium, it's everywhere. And I never would have imagined it. I rewrote the story, took it back to Ross and he said, you did it. You were able to pull it off. You're able to, um, make it as bad as it needed to be to get the story across. And I took some heat from that on social media. A lot of people, oh, you're writing about human trafficking. It's not nice. It's not fair. It's, it's degrading, but. I'm just trying to let people know the truth. I want to let people know. This. And the easiest way for me to do that is through a story. That's just what I do. Today, let's start with Murder Incorporated. Now, large syndicates in the U.S., they were you know, pretty big at one time. Murder Incorporated um, operated between 1929 and 1941, and they were in the enforcement arm of the National Crime Syndicate. And it was closely connected to the Italian American mafia and the Jewish mob. I had one lady said that her child thinks there was never any organized crime in this country. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know what they're teaching this kid in school, but you know, I just pulled this up on the internet. So anyway, Murder Incorporated was composed of, uh, Italian American gangsters, Jewish mobsters recruited from poor working class areas of New York, neighborhoods in Manhattan, Brooklyn was initially headed by Louis Lepke Bocalter and Albert Mad Hatter Anastasia, these couple of really bad dudes. They were known to have been responsible for between 400 and 1,000 contract killings. These guys charged between 1,000 to 5,000 per hit, and they were making some money doing it. They were finally exposed in 1941 by former member Abe Kid Twist Rielis. Now, this thing started... The predecessor of this murder incorporated was the Bugs and Meyer mob. Now you've probably heard of Jewish mobster Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel. 1920s, they teamed up with Sicilian mafioso Charles Lucky Luciano and created the commission and began to closely cooperate with their friend Lansky and the Jewish mob. And they wanted to form a, a multi-ethnic alliance that eventually was deemed the National Crime Syndicate. Now, soon after Siegel and Lansky disbanded the Bugs and Meyer gang, they helped form Murder Incorporated. Most of these guys, like I said, came from Lower East Side, uh, Brooklyn neighborhoods, Brownsville, East New York, and Ocean Hill, and operated out of a little candy store, Rosie Gold's Candy Store on the corner of Saratoga and Livonia in Brooklyn. The most prolific killer in the gang was Harry Strauss. He committed over a hundred murders. Some historians put the number as high as 500. Like I mentioned earlier, they got between 1,000 and 5,000 per killing. Most interesting or most well-known victim was Dutch Schultz. Now, 
Dutch was wanting to kill Thomas Dewey. Thomas Dewey was a prosecutor in New York that was prosecuting the mob. And Dutch wanted to get Dewey out of the way. Well, Dewey was pretty powerful at that time. He later became the governor of New York and then ran against Harry Truman for the presidency and almost won that uh, contest. But they decided that if Schultz knocked off Dewey, it would be too much publicity and to look too bad for the mob. So they ended up just killing Schultz. They weren't going to do anything to jeopardize what they had going on. But when you look at cartels, now they're criminal organizations that are active, you know, in Mexico. You've got organized crime in Mexico has about 175,000 members and it makes them the fifth biggest employer in the country, according to the Journal of Science. And they got 1.7 million people in Latin America incarcerated. So there's not a lot of work. People are doing things to make money. The cartels are working to cross people across the border down in the southern border. You see that every day on television, problems at the border. And I was in a get together during the holidays and I was talking to this group of people and I, I started mentioning the armbands that these people wear crossing the border. I don't know if you've any any of you have heard of that, but those are armbands are to show how much if they paid the syndicate or paid the cartel to cross the border. They have to pay $2,500 a piece to cross the Rio Grande. So they're like the gatekeepers. And each time you try and get across, if you're not successful, you get a red armband at first. And if you're not successful, you get another color. You get three attempts and then you got to pay again. So they're wanting to make sure they get their money and it's as productive as it can be now, transporting people, usually women and children for sex is another egregious source of profits for these violent criminals. Now for traffickers, it doesn't matter what product's being sold. If it's drugs or sex, they're both money makers. It's like they say, you can sell a drug one time. You can sell a person a thousand times. They, so they sell these kids for, for sex. Drug cartels often use trafficked women and children to smuggle drugs across the border. They'll pack that fentanyl and stuff on them and they'll piggyback it across in backpacks or taped to their bodies. So when they get into the U.S., they, they've managed to double dip. They got paid for it to come across and they get the stuff moved across. And these violent criminals have no problem with forcing women to swallow bags of drugs or have sex with hundreds of men. I mean, it's just crazy. About 25% of human trafficking survivors or opioid, have opioid problems. So they get them hooked on drugs. That's one of the things I brought out in my book, which was kind of disturbing. They get them hooked on opioids and on, on some of these drugs. And it's, it's bad. Now, when you start looking at it from a, the perspective of it being everywhere, it's just not south of the border. Once they get into the U.S., um, human trafficking, like I said, is usually linked to drug trafficking. But in 2018, Virginia... The state of Virginia was ranked sixth in the nation for active human trafficking cases. And that shocked me. I didn't realize that it was that bad. Maryland ranked 15th. So it's pretty high up there. But they always say, if you see something, say something. Uh, one of the things they talked about at the human trafficking symposium is that these people could be working at, at various businesses. They could be used in the sex industry, sex trade. But human trafficking is the second most profitable illegal industry in the United States. Second only to the drug trade. Now, I would bet that's gone up. That was from 2017, according to UNICEF. So I guarantee you with the 
illegals coming in, it's gone up. Now, in addition, sex trafficking is the most common type of trafficking in the U.S. In 2021, 72% of trafficking situations were sexual exploitation. So a lot of times it's not just people crossing the border, it's the people here. One of the stories that was uh, told at the symposium was a gentleman that was a career sex trafficker. He trafficked women. And he looked at it like the world's full of, this is how he said, he said, the world's full of lions and sheep. He said, be a lion, don't be a sheep. Because he said, I can tell from looking at a woman if I can take her and traffic her. And there were stories of doctors that women would come in and not make eye contact. The men would be with them on the phone constantly, never leave their side if they come in the hospital for some type of emergency or anything. So it's a terrible, terrible industry. And you don't realize that Dating sites, they get people on dating sites, even people's partners sell them out. People's uh, intimate partners sell them out into the trafficking world. Employers traffic people, family member, or caregiver could traffic somebody, a child. 54% that are vulnerable are for uh, relocation. And uh, a lot of these people have substance abuse issues, unstable housing, or they're runaways. One of the places that they would go get these women in the symposium that I sat and watched was they would go to homeless shelters, homeless halfway houses. They would buy them things and then flip these women and get them into trafficking. Most of these women don't make it, but a few years, once they're uh, in, the, in the trafficking industry, it usually doesn't uh, work too well for them. It's, it's too hard on them and they don't make it. They, they eventually pass away from it or or murdered or killed. There's a lot of bad things going on. Now there's a lot of stuff going on at the border and, um, the tidal wave of human smuggling and trafficking has led to an increased number of car chases. You've got people down there. They're, they're Ubering for the cartels. One guy was from North Carolina said that he received a message on TikTok, told him where to go to pick some people up. There was like 900 arrests this year, three or four chases per day. Involving groups of 20 or more people, they're recruiting teenagers to drive people inland and they're getting, try to get pulled over by the border patrol and these people are running. Now, some of the most dangerous cartels and gangs, a transnational gang like MS-13, whose motto is kill, rape, and control, were also taking advantage. A senior border patrol agent said that a gang member's attempt to evade arrest by exploiting the influx of migrants and attempting to enter our country, they work closely with cartels to support operations on both sides of the border. And these guys, a lot of them are, are working with these people for, to get fentanyl into the country. Now, fentanyl, everybody's heard about it. It costs as little as 10 cents to produce a fake prescription pill laced with fentanyl, which they can then sell for between 10 and $30. 10 kilos of fentanyl is worth $20 million, but it only costs $50,000 to produce. So... Every time somebody gets across that border with fentanyl, it's costing the lives of Americans and it's costing us our livelihoods. It's costing people the loss of their loved ones. It is not a good thing. Now, they said at the border that the majority of drugs like fentanyl were seized at the ports, they said, but they believe they only catch 5 to 10% of what's coming through either between ports and borders, but that puts it in perspective. Now, years ago, when I worked in the transportation industry, I think a lot of you know, I worked in supply chain management, took a trip to one of our ports, huge port. And I asked them, I said, what's the most interesting thing you found in one of these 
containers. And they said, well, one time we had a couple of Suburbans, Chevy Suburbans, SUVs, and it went through the x-ray machine and we saw there's vehicles in the container and they can look right through those containers in the x-ray machine and open it up and the, and the sides of it were all filled with drugs inside. I mean, they'd taken out the panels and the doors and, and filled them with, with drugs and then put them all back in place. So if you look, got in it, you would think it was just a uh, vehicle and not something that was transporting drugs, but these crazy drugs and they're thinking more and more ways to get them into the country. We have to realize that these cartels are becoming seriously armed. They're armed with military weapons, whether bought on the black market, they've got U.S. military weapons and you know, it's a struggle down there. So, you know, you said to be careful and watch what we're doing, but I think a lot of it is the ability to buy all those guns and weapons is because of the money they're making at the border, trafficking people and drugs. Let's think about that. Go out and read about, read up on it. See what you think. Let me know your thoughts. It's a terrible thing, but remember that countries that have open borders usually don't survive. Um, there's a reason that Hungary closed their borders. Um, when that started over there, they locked them down and closed them. Uh, you open them up and I know a lot of people think, oh, we're helping these people find a better life. But sad thing is you got to do it a certain way. You got to do it legally. You got to do it um, the right way and get these people into the country on work visas and let them work and do those things. But the problem is, is the infrastructure of the country can't handle all the people. You know, school systems get burdened down by it. The, the hospitals get burdened down by it. A lot of the people don't have the vaccinations that we do. So you've got a lot of diseases that we're not used to that are going around our country. We have to protect ourselves and protect our country and make sure that we'll be around to help these people in the long run. And if we just, you know, let people in, it's, it's going to cause us to get down a, a slope that maybe we can't recover from. So think about it. Let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear them. Again, this is Glenn with Murders, Mysteries, Conspiracies. Have a good day. You have been listening to Murders, Mysteries, and Conspiracies with author Glenn P. Klinger III, presented by the Florida Pickleball Clothing Company.com.